Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Also big news this week, the U.S. has been hacked again. Russian government hackers are believed to be responsible for infiltrating the computer systems of multiple agencies, including the Pentagon, Homeland Security, the Treasury Department, and even the National Institutes of Health. The hacking group Cozy Bear are said to be the perpetrators, and they exploited a vulnerability in computer monitoring software from a company called SolarWinds. For more on how the Russians were still able to get in our systems despite the U.S. spending billions on cybersecurity, we'll speak to Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter at The Washington Post. The government breach first came to light over the weekend when Reuters broke the story that the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department had been hacked. I broke the story that was part of a wider breach by the Russian intelligence service that included a top cybersecurity firm called FireEye. In fact, it was FireEye that last week, first it had been hacked, and there was reporting then that they had been hacked by the Russians. And then sort of on the weekend, I broke a story that it was all part of the same campaign. And then what we've found out in the subsequent days is that this is just getting bigger and bigger, extended beyond Treasury and Commerce to the State Department, to parts of the Pentagon, to the Department of Homeland Security, and to the National Institutes of Health. It's likely that other federal agencies will come to light. And it's not just the federal government. Okay, it's much broader than that. A lot of people might have uh, heard the name of the Russian hackers. They go by the name Cozy Bear or APT29. They've been uh, involved in a lot of other hacks before. There's like two hacking arms, I guess, for the Russians. There's the military hacking arm, which is the GRU, and then there's this, the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Cozy Bear and and maybe some of the other things that they've gotten into. Sure. And just to level set, there are really three security agencies. So there's, you're right, the military intelligence service, the GRU, there's the foreign intelligence service, which is sort of like the equivalent of CIA, that's the SBR. And then there's the FSB, the internal security service, which is more akin to the FBI. And all three have their own hacking teams, some of which are quite good. And all three have numerous hacking teams, not just one. One of SBR's hacking teams is a group that goes by the nickname of Cozy Bear. That's what cybersecurity researchers here call it, or APT-29. It's possible, maybe even likely, that APT-29 is the SBR unit behind this. We don't know for sure yet, but it's pretty clear that the SBR is involved in this hacking campaign. And this, whatever group it is of the SBR, is pretty darn good at what it's doing. Yeah. Tell us how they were able to get this hack going. My understanding is that they exploited that SolarWinds company and they used uh, software updates that they were rolling out to their clients. And that's how they got into a lot of these systems. Exactly. And so that's called a supply chain attack because it wasn't a full frontal attack right on the target government agency or a company, but rather on the software that the agency is using, in this case, to manage their network. And because everyone who uses software needs software patches and updates to keep it running properly, you're told constantly to keep your systems patched. Of course, 
agencies were patching. And unbeknownst to them, when they installed the patch, they were installing malware that enabled the Russian hackers to get inside their networks, get a foothold, sort of like through a back door, and get inside. Now, that didn't mean that the hackers were going to steal anything just because they got in, because in fact, they've compromised many, many, many victims. We don't even know exactly how many, but certainly countless victims right now. They didn't go in and steal data from all the victims that they were able to get into, able to compromise. It sort of depended on whether or not that victim's data was of interest to the Russians. Do we know if there was anything specific stolen from any of these government agencies? So we know emails were taken, um, and emails are often a juicy target for nation-state hackers because they can tell you so much, right, about what the policymakers or the diplomats are thinking. And uh, certainly at the State Department, they were interested in in what the folks at state were thinking about Russia, Russian strategic interests around the world, at Treasury you know, it might be that they were interested in what sorts of sanctions might be coming down the road on Russia. At the Pentagon, it's unclear yet the extent to which they've penetrated the network there because it's so huge. You know, at NIH, well, we don't know exactly what was taken or of interest, but certainly we know that this group, the SDR, has been attempting to steal coronavirus vaccine-related information and research. Yeah, and that's obviously so important right now. The U.S. government has spent billions of dollars on a system for detecting hacks like this, and you wrote a subsequent article, you know, in your coverage of all this, basically saying that the Russians just outsmarted it. They're just that good right now. So part of it was their skill as hackers, and a part of it was also a government blind spot in that this system wasn't set up to detect certain new types of hacks. The government and Department of Homeland Security in particular has spent billions of dollars over the years to come up with an intrusion detection and prevention system called Einstein that's been in place for, for a while. And Einstein is supposed to detect malicious intrusions at the point of entry into an agency network, in particular on the civilian side of the government, so not the Department of Defense and not the classified networks. The problem is it works off known indicators or signatures, they're often called. And if the attacker is using a new type of technique that hasn't been seen before or recognized before, then Einstein can't look for it, can't recognize it. And so that that's one of the main failings of this Einstein right. system. Yeah, I mean, you always have to kind of feed it these new things. It's like AI, right? You, you always have to feed it the new, the newest thing so that they can keep up on it. I mean, that's so tough. And, and right. lawmakers, obviously, they get very angry when things like this happen. But some of the good points that they make is we've been going back and forth on cybersecurity efforts like this for so long, especially when we see things coming from Russians and the Chinese government as well. And, you know, why haven't we gotten better at this, I guess, let's say. And beyond that, you know, what kind of consequences come from this? Like, do we respond in kind? You know, how how does the government respond when something like this happens? Part of that long-running debate is, is that what Russia appears to be doing, at least for now, is what's known as classic espionage, right? They're spying on 
on the U.S. government and on private companies for information and intelligence, which, especially when it comes to government networks, is what the U.S. government does to Russia and to other adversaries, as well as to some friendly countries. All pretty much advanced uh, countries spy on each other. It's just part of how they try to, you know, keep themselves safe and, in fact, actually ensure a degree of stability in the world. And so, on the one hand, there's no international norm against spying. On the other, if it is done to such a degree that it seems out of proportion, and and if the attacker gets caught, well, you know, in a way, bad on them is, is the thinking. And so, then the policy question is, what should be done about it, right? First of all, there's an increasing uh, chorus here of lawmakers who think that the foreign country that does this should be called out, should be made to, uh, you know, to help, help to account for it somehow. Right. And I think one of the main ways of doing it that we found is to apply sanctions, but those really work best when they are applied by more than just the United States, but by other countries as well, sort of together in concert to apply collective pressure right, on, on, the, uh, on the adversary. Yeah. Otherwise, if it's just one country, it has less impact. And, and Russia on their part said, you know, well, we didn't do this. So, I mean, you know, they're obviously going to deny oh, it. Yeah. It makes everybody think, hey, well, you probably did it even more now since you're denying it so much. Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Finally, for this week, we'll talk about a new report on Havana syndrome, which dates back to 2016, when American and Canadian diplomats in Cuba started suffering from mysterious neurological symptoms, such as pressure in the head, dizziness, visual distortions. This was all after hearing loud noises. A new report said that this was most likely caused by a pulsed microwave energy attack. Once again, the Russians are suspected, but the report doesn't say definitively who is responsible for this. For more on what caused Havana Syndrome, we'll speak to Josh Letterman, national political reporter at NBC News. So when this first started coming to light in 2017, the incidents actually started in 2016, right as the Obama administration was preparing to leave office, but it didn't come out publicly into 2017. And a lot of the initial speculation, because of the fact that a lot of these diplomats, spies and other U.S. government employees had heard these loud ringing noises accompanying the symptoms that they had, the speculation was that it might have been some type of a sonic weapon, some type of an audio wave that was causing this damage. But as we and others started looking into that, that theory was fairly quickly disproven. And another theory that emerged fairly early on in 2017 was the possibility of some type of electromagnetic frequency, which includes things like the waves that are used in your microwave to heat up your food, uh, radio frequencies that carry sounds to your radio, and other types of waves, including light, for instance, and lasers. And for the last couple of years, it's basically been a dead end as far as the invasion. We know the FBI, the CIA, the military and others have investigated, have concrete, hard evidence on the ground. But now, in the absence of any answer to that, the State Department commissioned this research report from the National Academies of Science, who have been working on for months, and their conclusion, uh, while they cannot definitively say what is causing 
these injuries, they do believe that the most likely cause is some type of a pulsed electromagnetic signal, such as microwaves. Now, pulsed means that instead of it being a consistent, even signal, that it was really, really, really quick, fractions of a second, bursts of energy. And the reason that that may be at play is that there's something called the Frey effect that's actually been studied for decades where if you use really tiny little bursts of energy, it can create tiny momentary changes in the fluids in your brain that can then be perceived by your ears as sound, even though it's actually not sound, it's it's a microwave. And that's one of the reasons that they think that this is the most likely thing that happened to the diplomats. But as you pointed out, that still doesn't answer the key question of who or what might have been behind it. The diplomats that were targeted or affected by this had long-term effects in some cases. Not all of them, but some of them did. They said that it was consistent with brain trauma, things like that. They heard the loud noises. They had pressure in their head, dizziness, visual disturbances, all of this stuff. I think even till this day, some of them still experience some type of actions like that. And it wasn't just in Cuba. This happened in China. It happened in Europe and other instances. And I guess at one point uh, there at NBC News, there was a report even that said that Russia could have been a suspect in this. There was all sorts of mobile phone data that they were using that placed Russian intelligence officers that were working on this type of technology in the same place as other CIA officers who were affected by this. So they became a player in this as well. You're absolutely right about all of that. I've spoken to a lot of these diplomats and other government employees who were affected by this. And some of them, as you point out, have basically made a full recovery. The effects were short term. Others report to this day ongoing problems with cognition, with balance, with memory and headaches, that kind of a thing. What doctors saw on advanced imaging of the brain was consistent with what we call mild traumatic brain injury, also known as concussion. But the pattern, what they call the constellation of symptoms, is something doctors really have never seen before. The types of changes they were seeing in the brain and the pattern of it. And they've used that pattern to be able to now, when a diplomat overseas complains of an incident like this, they're able to take the scans of their brains, compare them to the confirmed cases and see whether or not it's consistent with that or whether they might be suffering from any one of a million other reasons that we all get headaches or could have other types of injuries to the body or the brain. And as far as the other countries, the U.S. government has only confirmed that there have been cases that have happened in Cuba and one in China. But we know that the government has gone to fairly great lengths throughout this process over the last four years to keep a lid on a lot of this publicly, to not acknowledge new cases until they're absolutely forced to. And so, as you point out, we do now have reports of cases, people who have complained of similar incidents and symptoms in about a half a dozen other countries, frankly, including here in the U.S., including in the U.K. and Poland, and also in Russia, where, as you point out, we reported a couple of years ago that the U.S. intelligence community believed that Moscow was the most likely culprit, due in part to the fact that they are known to have worked on these kinds of technologies for many decades now. What are some of the implications of this now? Because this is some spy level stuff. This is like a spy movie almost. And as I said, you know, it's kind of been fascinating for four years now looking into all of this. I remember when they were trying to find out what was the cause of this. I think somebody came out with an analysis of cicada sounds saying this was just high pitched cicada noises that could have done this. So, I mean, what are the implications of this if they're targeting diplomats? Well, yeah, and that's right. You have to be really, really careful before you go ahead and 
accuse a foreign nation, particularly an, a nuclear armed adversary, of something as egregious as beaming American citizens with brain damaging microwaves. The potential diplomatic implications there are very profound. But you're right that there have been other theories that have emerged that people have taken a close look at, including the fact that the sound that these diplomats heard, I, in 2017, obtained a recording of the sound that was taken by diplomats while they were in Cuba, uh, basically as this was happening to them, and it was starting to spread in the community that this was happening. One of them took out a tape recorder and recorded it. We published that sound, and a lot of folks who took a look at that said that it was very similar to a certain type of cicada. And there have also been questions about whether, including from some psychiatrists and others, about whether the diplomats might have been suffering from what doctors refer to as mass psychogenic illness in layman's terms, basically mass hysteria, that you have diplomats, you know, they're away from home, they're serving in this tight-knit community in Havana where they're surrounded by a lot of foreign environment and, and that these kinds of fears can spread from one person to another where basically you hear that your neighbor, your fellow employee at the embassy heard some strange sound and is feeling headaches and then a few days later you hear something kind of off and you start to wonder, well, is that the sound? And you say, <laughs> right. well, gee, my head has kind of been hurting. Maybe that's what's happening. But the doctors who have actually examined these patients and looked at their brain scans have said repeatedly, including in peer-reviewed studies that have been published in the Journal of American Medicine, Medical Association and elsewhere, that what has happened to these people's brains cannot be faked. You cannot make up in your head some of what they are seeing on brain scans. What does the report recommend to do in the future when we hear about other attacks like this? And beyond that, also, I was also reading in your article that the some lawmakers in the latest defense authorization bill were saying, well, we need to help some of these diplomats, people that were affected by this, just kind of ongoing help with any long lasting effects that they might have from this as well. So the scientists who wrote this report are basically pleading with the government to take this more seriously and be more proactive. The report specifically recommends that the State Department create some type of a response mechanism when they have incidents in, this, in the future uh, that allows new cases to be studied much more quickly and effectively. Now, the State Department says they already have basically a process in place to do that. But there have also been these concerns about whether these employees who have been affected by this are being adequately taken care of, particularly ones who say, look, I was with my family. I heard this exact thing. I have all the symptoms, but the government, for whatever reason, is telling me I'm not a case. And so I am not then eligible for workers' comp or other benefits to try to have medical care for that. And so there's been legislation from Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire in the U.S. Senate that has been joined by several other senators who are also calling for additional legislation for the federal government to make sure that there are adequate resources in place to make sure that these diplomats and importantly, their family members who may have been affected get the very best care they possibly can. Wow, I was such an interesting story. More clues to Havana syndrome, but still remains a huge mystery. Josh Letterman, national political reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this 
was your daily dive weekend edition. 